according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me tonight once again in the book of Exodus. We left off, uh, we finished chapter 28 last night, so tonight we're moving on to chapter 29. This class is day 43 in our Through the Bible schedule. And uh, the chapters we're going to cover are Exodus 29, 30, and 31. So we're going to cut uh, real close to the, uh, to the golden calf. We'll save the golden calf for uh, Sunday morning and uh, continue on through. Um, remember, this is the roller coaster. We're not stopping. We're not slowing down. We're just pushing on through. So uh, Exodus only has 40 chapters, and uh, we'll wrap that up on Sunday. And we'll be moving on into uh, Leviticus. There's actually a couple of chapters in Numbers that we're going to hit before we formally open up Leviticus. And again, that's just keeping everything in the chronological uh, way that we've been doing it. So stay tuned for that. Exodus chapter 29, we're continuing on with the description of the tabernacle to include the, uh, the priesthood and the uh, garments and, and uh, all the details that go into it. Before we do get started tonight, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father in His faithfulness to bless our time in the truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together tonight. Thank you for the abundant blessings that are just multiplied throughout each week, throughout this entire year. Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again this evening as we open our eyes, open our ears, and Father, soften our hearts to receive this word implanted. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so continuing on. We, we left off at the end of chapter 28, we had uh, the, uh, the priests were getting dressed. The, the high priest had his garments described, and then the other priests had their garments de- uh, described. And we just cross into chapter 29 now, and it continues. Intricate and extensive procedures are put in place for the consecration and ordination of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. All right, and so we'll deal with it here. Let's look at verses uh, 1 following. This is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, to minister as priests to me. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread and unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and present them on the basket along with the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. All right. This is pretty intricate, okay? And there's going to be a lot of dead animals. There's going to be a lot of eating. There's going to be a lot of um, oil and, and washings that take place. Uh, as we've commented upon already, the Old Testament is very uh, visual. It's very, uh, the shadow doctrine is taught in a very visible, observable way. And uh, all of this is, is painting pictures. All of this is teaching doctrine that we can relate to in the New Testament, but we've got to work our way through. For example, my ordination didn't have any animal sacrifices. Uh, I didn't have to be washed in front of everybody. All right, we have the spiritual realities that these uh, that these rituals represent. All right, so bring them to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Take the garments and put Aaron and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe and the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. You shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. 
then take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Remember the fundamental issue on anointing is the spreading of the oil, the smearing of the oil. You shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them. And they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And I think it's worth discussing at this point, there is a transition, there is a switch over. Back in chapter 19, there was an indication that God had desired for the entire nation to be a holy nation, to be a nation of priests. And then what happened in, in, the, uh, in the aftermath of that was uh, a recoil on the part of uh, the, the nation that was stepping back and was fearful and wanted Moses to become a mediator and to kind of go back and forth. And, and, and it seems that that very act is what uh, causes this adjustment where then God says, all right now, instead of, instead of being a priesthood, you're going to have a priesthood. Okay, does that make sense? And so instead of being a priesthood, the Jewish people are going to have a priesthood in, the, in terms of the Levitical uh, priest, the tribe of Levi, representing them before the Lord and being a, a, uh, a mediating priesthood between Israel and the Lord God. But in chapter 19, I think the statement is pretty clear that that was the, not the original intent, that God wanted the, all of the Jewish people to be a, uh, a kingdom of priests, to be a holy people before Him. So that's a curious thing to me, and it's and it's one of the big distinctions that we observe between Israel and the church. And, and one of the, the the things I will always remember that came out of Lewis Berry Schaefer's systematic theology is that uh, Israel had a priesthood; the church is a priesthood, and that is so profound and it's so simple, and it lays it out there in a, in that contrast in a very marvelous way when we're contrasting Israel and the church. But really. Israel had that as its original design, and, and they, they stepped back from that, and God has given them the, the Levitical priesthood in its place. So that's, that's a curious thing to me, and I, and I want to do more work on that, particularly moving forward to the Millennial Kingdom and what happens then when God pours out His Holy Spirit and every Jewish pe- person in the, in the Millennial Kingdom is vested in that prophetic office. What happens then when your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and that the, the, the ministry of Israel to the Gentile nation seems to be a whole nation full of Moseses in, uh, in, the, uh, in the millennial kingdom. So stay tuned for that. I think we'll be touching on that. All right, before we get to the sacrifices in verses 10 and following, just some vocabulary here related to the consecration and the ordination as we have uh, the verb for consecrate or sanctify is kadash. And this is uh, what we might expect because it centers on the uh, aspect of holiness, what it means to be, uh, when, when we say consecrated or sanctified, that means you are set apart, that you are identified as being separate, being different, being unique. And so this is what happens with the tribe of Levi. They're set apart in a different way than the other 12 tribes. And this is what sets apart the family of Aaron. The household of Aaron is set apart even from their fellow Levites in in the tribe that they are a part of. So Kadash, to consecrate, to sanctify, to set apart. This is the only chapter in the Bible where Kadash uh, appears ten times. In fact, it's off the charts when you look at the concentration of these things. Um, And this, since I'm a visual person, I like to see charts and I like to see things of this nature. Oh, that link didn't work. All right. I thought I was saving myself some time by doing that. That's all right. 
We'll do this the old-fashioned way. So I'll show you how it's done. When you're talking about consecrate, just right-click the verb there, consecrate. Come over here, select the lemma, and then do your search. And we're going to search through the Bible for Kadash. And there you have it. 171 results in 152 verses. Okay, And if you want to take the time to go through and read them all, you can. But what I'm going to show you and this is a way visually to see this. Click on the button up there that says charts, okay? And then spend all day on this, staring at these charts, which is kind of fun. Um, and it gets colorful and it's fun to look at. Uh, I do need to change this though. This is count per chapter. And I guess count per chapter is good because look where we are right there. Exodus 29, the only place in the Bible that has that many uses of Kadash. I mean, it just jumps out at you. Um, we'll see Leviticus 27. No surprise there. Second Chronicles 29. That one actually is a surprise to me. And uh, Second Chronicles chapter 30. Alright. Anyway, these are the concentrations as you spot them. You can sort it by book and you see Leviticus is top of the charts there. Exodus and Leviticus. Okay along with 2 Chronicles. Remind me, when we get to 2 Chronicles, we're going to start spotting some Kadashes when we get there. <laughs> but these are the things that you see. And when you see these patterns, and when you observe that this is the point of concentration, then you, you realize, I better pay attention to this. I better observe what this chapter is dealing with. This chapter has ten places where it's talking about making holy, where it's talking about consecrating or sanctifying or setting apart uh, not just Aaron and his sons, but also the altar and, and uh, the uh, the clothing, and everything has to be cleansed. Everything has to be sanctified uh, in this event. Anyway, if you have more questions on that, let me know. I'll be happy to to walk you through that. Kadash is the Hebrew equivalent of Hagiadzo, and so we got plenty of New Testament passages that we're familiar with that relate to holiness and uh, to be sanctifying. In fact, the prayers that Jesus offered that we would be sanctified in the truth in John 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. All right? So we're not you know, smearing oil on our head or being washed in the gate. We are sanctified in the truth. And so you've come here tonight to be taught the truth and we're in fellowship and we're studying the Bible and we're growing in the Word of God. We're being sanctified in the truth. Your Word is truth. And then as Jesus says, for their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves may be sanctified in truth. I'm not, uh, not going to read the rest of those verses. I'll let you look those up on your own. Uh, but I recommend all of them as it relates to this. Um, you know, in Acts twenty thirty two and um, in Paul's farewell message from Ephesus, he knows that that uh, he's committing them to 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 God's grace in that departing message. Likewise, in Hebrews, we have all of the sanctification that takes place there in Hebrews chapter ten. All right, that's the that's the verb for sanctify, okay, or consecrate. The verb that we have there in verse one to consecrate them to minister as priest to me. So when you set somebody apart, okay back then as a priest or today as a pastor. If somebody is called to be a pastor and he's ordained and he's set apart, what does that mean? Does that mean he's a better person? Does that mean he's a better Christian? Does that mean that, obviously not, okay? We're going to see Aaron has a huge failure coming up pretty darn quickly here with the golden calf, right? 
Anybody that's consecrated and ordained and so forth, they're still sinners saved by grace like everybody else. But we recognize that this is a calling where God holds them to the higher standard. And that's going to become very clear as we work our way through. All right, the, uh, the verb of ordination, though, is malay. And malay is kind of interesting because malay is, is basically a verb that means to fill, and it's used idiomatically. It's connected with the noun for, for hand, to fill the hand. So anytime they, uh, they're actually instructed here to ordain them, to consecrate them, and to fill their hand. And fill their hand with what, right? Well, it's an idiom, it's an expression, to fill the hand. And I like that as an expression, uh, literally to fill the hand. It's the idiom for ordaining. This is the only chapter in the Bible where that idiom appears, and it does appear four times in this chapter. In verse 9, you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them, and they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute. So you shall fill the hand of Aaron and his sons. Verse 29, the holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him, that in them they may be anointed and ordained. Filled hands. 33 and 35 as well. They shall eat those things by which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, that is the filling of their hand and setting apart. But a layman shall not eat them because they are holy. You know, there's the food items, the sacrifices, the bread that must be, that cannot be eaten by any non-priest. And finally, verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. You shall ordain them. You shall fill their hand through the seven days. And that's the other thing. Um, you know, mine was done in a night. You know, I didn't have to stay in the tabernacle for seven days and, uh, and do any of that. All right. It also is a puzzling thing to me as well. I'm, I'm curious if, if uh, there's other places where when you're approaching the Lord, when you're coming to Him for worship, for sacrifice, it says, do not appear before me empty-handed. And, and that's the prohibition, you know, and, and if you're going to go worship the Lord, you, you better have something with you. <laughs> you know, don't just show up empty-handed. But that admonition is curious to me because by, by virtue of ordination, their hand is filled right? No priest, no high priest, no, because their hand is filled at ordination. I guess you could think of that as a fulfillment of that. They're not appearing empty-handed. They're ordained. They're called to this ministry. And that's, uh, I, I'm just, I'm going to keep mulling over that in, uh, in future classes. All right. As far as the rest of this chapter goes, there's a ton of detail in there, and I'm going to let us, uh, let you read that on your own. Um, as far as the, the basic procedures go, I think, again, we want to notice it is for seven days that they're doing this. And, um, yeah. Animals are being butchered, entrails and kidneys are going places. I, my head spins sometimes, and, and, and I'll, be, I'll be the first to admit this, all right, that pouring out the ashes here, pouring out the blood there, where do the entrails go? What are we doing with the lobe? Um, things like that. It just you got to be detailed with it. You got to stop. And when your head is spinning, just start right-clicking stuff. Start looking things up. Remind yourself what is this about, right? Like when we get to Leviticus and we have clean and unclean animals, and the animal that chews the cud, and like, wait a minute, what's a cud again? You know, let's just find this out. <laughs> and you just start doing that, okay? Because honestly, it's one of those you know perishable skills. You use it or you lose it, and, and we don't use this, right? We don't we don't do animal ritual. 
Okay, and that's the thing. And so it's always a, a refresher course every time you get back to ritual uh, to remind yourself what the procedures were and then not to lose the doctrine with all the details, with all the, the finer points of, of things. I want to make sure we, we stay solid on the doctrine as we work our way through this. All right. So the priests are set apart. They have different costumes, different uniforms, different robes, different turbans. They've got different diet. They've got different expectations. They've got different requirements as far as maintaining their personal holiness. There's, there's, um, it's just one step beyond anything that, that Israel had. Okay, And keep that in mind, particularly not only for the rest of Exodus, but on into uh, Leviticus as well. The nature of Israel's daily offerings is described in verses 38 through 46. So this is their daily business. This is what they can expect when they get dressed and go to work each day. This is what you shall offer on the altar to one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Okay? These are national sacrifices. It's not two lambs for every priest. It's one lamb in the morning, uh, one lamb in the evening. Okay? And it is put in that order in the morning at twilight, that's a little bit backwards from other passages where each day is described as sundown to sundown, where evening would precede morning. This has, uh, the offerings are morning and evening. There should be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. And so along with these uh, animals come th- comes the wine, comes the drink offering, the other instructions as they are being described here. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, shall offer it with the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning, for a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. That phrase, soothing aroma, I don't have notes on it tonight, but we're going to have a bunch of comments to make when we get to this phrase in, in Leviticus. The idea is that it smells great, okay, right? You know, meat on the grill smells great. I'm the first to admit that. And God thinks so too, because when these whole burnt offerings are going up, when these when meat's on the grill, okay, dead animal on an altar, when that when it's going up before the Lord, He is the one who does the smelling. He is the one that that perceives the the aroma of this offering. Right? And, and so we talk about this. We talk about how God is beyond space and time. He's beyond the universe. But He sees, He hears, He feels, He smells, He tastes, He interacts with, with us in our worship. I think it's a glorious thing. And so these offerings go up morning and evening. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And so it's every morning, it's every evening, Always. It doesn't stop. The fire doesn't go out on the altar. They keep this going non-stop. Throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there, I will meet there with the sons of Israel and shall be consecrated by my glory. The fact that he's there makes it set apart. The fact that God resides in this tabernacle makes this a uniquely holy place on planet earth. There is no Gentile kingdom that has the Lord God dwelling in their midst. And here is where God chooses to, to park his Shekinah glory. Okay? It's remarkable. 
So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. How long is it going to take for Israel to forget the Exodus? Okay, Not long at all. But the idea is when they stand before the Lord every morning, every evening, all day, every day, they have this constant reminder throughout their generations. They are God's covenant people. They are the chosen people. This is their blessing to, to be able to have proximity and to be able to approach the holiness of God. No Gentile nation has that access. If, uh, if you're an Egyptian or a Roman or a Greek or whatever you are, and, uh, and, and you want to approach the creator God of the universe, what do you got to do? You got to go to Israel. You got you to gotta, uh, go to the Jews. Okay? They're the ones that have the scriptures. They're the ones that have the presence of God. They're the ones that are going to have the access that your nation doesn't have. So I hope we keep these things in mind, right? Because it's hard to forget what we know now. And, and um, in, in some respects, when we read things like Exodus and Leviticus, when we read the Old Testament and we see this priesthood and we think, man, um, we're, we're so spoiled, we're so blessed, we have our access all day, every day. You and I can, can go to the throne of grace at a, at a moment's notice, right? We can be praying without ceasing. We enter within the veil. And, and so we, we, we tend to, I don't know, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, because we, we, we have what we have and we look at what they had and in comparison, there's no comparison. It is just so much greater. It is so much more uh, amazing to consider that when we consider these things, we forget that what they had in their day and age was awesome. What they had in their day and age was nothing that was unlike anything that any Gentile nation ever had. They had more than what Job ever had or any Gentile nation ever had. They have God himself dwelling in their midst. See? And if they can only walk in that veil one day a year, one man, one day a year, that's more than the Gentiles had. Just uh, keep these things in mind. All right. We get to chapter 30, and there's one final article of furniture for the holy place. And it seems like uh, it's set apart for a reason, right? We had all those other articles of the furniture, right? We had the Ark of the Covenant. We had the, um, the uh, golden candlestick. We had, we had most of the furniture was already described earlier before we got to the garments and the, the priests and the anointing oil and all that. Now in chapter 30, we're back to another furniture piece. It says, moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. So this is not the, the, the other altar, the brazen altar. It's not for the, uh, the whole burnt offering. It's not out there in the courtyard by the gate. This is actually going to be positioned inside the holy place, right at the veil, right up against the veil on the way into the Holy of Holies. And this is a much smaller altar, and it's called the, uh, the altar of incense is the usual term for it. Its length shall be a cubit, its width shall be a cubit, it shall be square. So, you know, a foot and a half, foot and a half. It's pretty small compared to that big brazen altar that's out, uh, out in the courtyard. Its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold on top and its sides all around and its horns, and you shall make a gold molding all around for it. And you shall make two gold rings for it under its molding. We've seen these before in other furniture pieces. This is for the poles to slide through. 
on opposite sides. They should be holders for poles with which to carry it. Everything gets poles, so they can they can they got they got to walk with this. They're going to march with this as they move from place to place. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony. All right. And so as you're working your way into the tabernacle, of course, there's the outer courtyard. You get past that that uh, gate, and then you get past the the brazen altar. You cross the courtyard, you come to the tent itself. And when you enter through that curtain, uh, or sometimes it's called a screen, when you, when you enter through that curtain, now you're in the holy place. That's the first of the two compartments. And you better be a priest or a Levite, or you shouldn't be this far. <laughs> okay? You get into the holy place, there's a candlestick, there's the, the table of showbread, and then this. This is the third piece of furniture in that holy place. And it's on the far end, it's right up against that veil. It's right there as close to that veil. See, because when you're pouring the incense on there, that smoke is going to rise up before the veil. It can even, you know, filter through the veil so that God smells this. That's this to smell nice. Incense is supposed to be smelling nice. And it's also a picture of prayer. All right. So, near the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet you. This is the closest anybody gets except for the Day of Atonement. This is the closest that, that you get in your approach to the holiness of God. And it is an altar of incense representing our prayer life before the Lord. All right. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. So they've got you know, a duty roster every morning. They've got things that they've got to get done inside the, uh, the tabernacle. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord through your generations. I think it's a great picture. It's it's similar to what we would see in the New Testament when we're told to pray without ceasing, right? Get that incense going morning and night and don't ever stop. Don't ever stop. All right, some notes then in the left panel. Um, This altar, that's the altar of incense, is the place of prayer where a sweet-smelling savor can rise up before the presence of God. Um, We've got other references to this. In fact, by the way, the prayer that we do here on earth actually has manifestations in heaven. Angels are up there in heaven holding these these bowls full of of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. So uh, take a look at Revelation chapter 8 when you get home tonight and take a look at that. Again, acacia wood overlaid with gold, just like we saw previously, is usually thought of as a picture of Jesus Christ, humanity and deity, both together in one person. Of course, Jesus Christ is the only name by which we can approach the Father in prayer. If you try to stand before the Father in prayer in any other name besides Jesus Christ, forget about it. There's no other name given among, uh, among men, right? There's no other access. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes, comes to the Father but by me. So... Uh, yeah, we approach him in the name of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.24, 1 John 2.2, 2, propitiation for our sins. Yes, so many of these marvelous references. I would encourage you to uh, work your way through those. I'll read Hebrews 4.16. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, of all the things when I'm contrasting Israel and the church, when I'm contrasting law versus grace, Old Testament versus New Testament, 
you know, I wouldn't trade a church age believer priesthood for anything under the sun. But if, did you ever stop to wonder why is it that Aaron on the Day of Atonement or the high priest on the Day of Atonement, he gets the furthest that anybody can ever get and, and he gets there and he does what he does on the Day of Atonement and then he turns around and he comes right back out. He's done until next year. Okay? But at that, at that pinnacle, at that climax, at that crescendo where, where uh, he is as close as a human being can get to the Shekinah glory of God himself, what he's approaching is a mercy seat. And what you and I approach is a throne of grace. Doesn't that just communicate? Doesn't that resonate? To me, that's, that's unbelievable. And so when, when I draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, I just think, man, this is just so far beyond the mercy seat. It's because of the mercy seat. It's because Jesus Christ, our mercy seat, has satisfied the righteous demands of God. And so we can come to a throne of grace in a way that the Old Testament priesthood never could. Now as far as this, this altar goes, here's the point I want to make with respect to this. This altar, yes it's a picture of Christ, but it's also a picture of you and me. The, the altar of incense, because our lives are supposed to be a fragrant aroma. And we read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. You realize that? You and I, we are, uh, we are the sweet aromas. God is, is sending us everywhere He sends us so that we smell nice, okay? So that our smell is His smell. It's the knowledge of Him in every place. Manifesting through us the sweet aroma, Okay? It's like you get one of these air, uh, air freshener things and you plug it in or, you know, whatever, and you, you, you stick them in different places around your house or in your car or whatever. Well, that's what God is doing with us. He's, he's putting us all around the world and everywhere He sends us, that aroma goes with us. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We're a fragrance. So everywhere we go, as we conduct our lives as a sweet-smelling savor, we live our lives as a living sacrifice, as we're serving God in the, in the church age, in the Christian way of life. Okay? This is New Testament here, Second Corinthians. And so we are a fragrance of Christ to God. So He smells us, and we smell like Christ, right? Because Christ is in us, the hope of glory. We're serving Christ as we go. And it's a, it's a sweet-smelling savor. It's a marvelous sweet-smelling savor. But at the same time, notice, among those who are being saved, and we all, we're all the saved ones, we smell alike, but also among those who are perishing, because they don't smell like us. It's a different kind of smell. And in fact, when those perishing ones smell us, they're not liking it. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Isn't that amazing? How the same, the same thing can have two different aromas at the same time. It can simultaneously smell awesome and it can simultaneously smell awful. It just comes down to the perspective. Okay? In fact, I want to coin a phrase and I'm going to trademark it so I can collect royalties. Um, I'm going to copyright this right here, right now on YouTube for the whole world to watch. Okay? Because that, 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 the, the common expression that we, everybody knows is beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, right? Well, I'm going to change it now to 
the sweet aroma is in the nostrils of the of the of the of the smeller. <laughs> okay, work with me here. I'm going to tweak that a bit. But the point is, if you're an unbeliever and you smell Christ, you're not liking that at all. It's an aroma of death to death. It's like the the evil that hates the the light because they're evil, and so they they live in the darkness. They 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 don't like the sweet aroma of Christ, and to them it's, it stinks. So you have it there. And again, who is adequate for these things? Not any one of us. God makes us adequate. Our adequacy is from God. He makes us adequate. If, if we're a sweet-smelling savor, then praise God for the grace of God that makes this possible. And we can appreciate that. Also, Philippians 4.18. I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. What did Epaphroditus do? He traveled from Philippi to Ephesus and he brought money. He was supporting Paul in his imprisonment. And, you know, we think about what we're doing when we give to missions or when we give to the church or when we, we put money in the grace box or what are we doing? It's an earthly thing, but it's a spiritual thing and it's a sweet-smelling savor. It's like this altar of incense. It's going up to the, to the Lord and God smells it and it smells good because it's done in grace. It's done in, uh, with divine viewpoint. A fragrant aroma. And this is true, this acceptable sacrifice for anything you're doing in the, in the Christian way of life. From uh, a pastor giving a sermon to a Sunday school teacher teaching a class to a, to a deacon uh, you know, everything that you're doing as unto the Lord. The piano player playing every work of service Okay? I like to say changing diapers in the nursery. It's a sweet smelling savor. Okay? It might be a stinky diaper, but it's a sacrifice as unto the Lord as a sweet smelling savor. And this, this little table of incense that we have here, this, this um, altar in the holy place. All right? So that gets us through 1 through 10. Let's look at verses 11 and following. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. Now last night we talked about the grace that was given when they were making voluntary contributions for the construction of the tabernacle. And the grace that was so abundant, we're going to come back to that because that, that gets featured as well in, in Leviticus coming up in next week and the week after. But the, um, this is not grace, this is law, this is a requirement, this is, this is a have to. Everyone who is numbered shall give a half shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And by the way, in case you were wondering, the shekel is 20 geras. Okay? Are we good with that? So a half shekel now is 10 geras. Yes, because a shekel is 20 geras. All right. But half a shekel is contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. And by the way, these are also the, the dead men that are, that are going to die when he judges the nation and says, all right now, if you paid your shekel... You know, you're over 20 at the Exodus, you're not going to enter the promised land. That's the, the judgment that's going to come upon this Exodus generation. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Forget I said that. Okay, Spoiler alert, just pretend that didn't happen. Um, but everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give this contribution. Okay, And the whole point of this, and I, and I realize 
There's folks that have you know, views that are hostile to church membership and formal church membership and so forth. But I'm sorry, everywhere I look in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament alike, I see accountability and I see records that are being kept and I see leadership that's accountable for those that they're leading. And I see those that they're leading that are accountable to support those that are, that are leading them. All right, so everybody has the same half shekel. Everybody has the same access. Everybody has the same part in the, in the uh, nation of Israel here. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. So it's, it's not like some of the animal sacrifices that are kind of graded based on income. This is absolute, half shekel per person. And uh, when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. All right, so you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel, as verse 16, shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So this census and specific tax is stipulated for the silver donations for the tabernacle. This will show the contrast between what a person has to give and what uh, a grace-oriented believer wants to give. What a contrast. All right, one final item remains to be constructed for the courtyard now. Again, we already had courtyard uh, with the altar and the curtains and the, and the courtyard arrangements, but it's, something was left out. Just like the altar of incense was left out of the, of the tent furnishings, the laver was left out of the courtyard furnishings. Can't explain it, I'm just observing it. I don't know why. Why does God build almost everything and leave one thing out? And then he says, okay, let's do this last piece, right? You know, like making Adam and not making Eve quite yet, right? And just leaving one thing out until Adam looks around and says, hey, something's missing here. And God says, you're right, here's the woman, okay? Or creating the universe and all the galaxies and all the planets, but leaving planet Earth out. And then bringing the angels around and saying, okay, watch this. And then they get to be the audience to celebrate and worship God when God creates the Earth. It's just, he does this again and again and again. He creates almost everything and has one final missing piece. So for the uh, indoor furniture, it was the, uh, the altar of incense. For the outside furniture, it is the, the, uh, the bronze laver, verses 17 through 21. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also make a laver. This is a, a water bowl. This is a, a pool, okay? A laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. And you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and so you shall put water in it. So as you're walking in, you come through the gate, you pass the altar, you get to the laver, and you better be cleansed at that laver before you move into the tent, before you move into the holy place. That's the order of progression here. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. Okay, It's not a total body bath, it has hands and feet. And there's a doctrine in this that Jesus was trying to communicate to his disciples in the, uh, the night in which he was betrayed about foot washing as opposed to entire body bathing. They got their body bathing when they were ordained at their consecration of service. This is the hand and foot washing before they go into the, the daily um, operations inside the tabernacle. So when they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Ooh, that's serious. <laughs> okay. If you don't wash your hands before you're going in, death sins. When they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a fire sacrifice to the Lord, you better be cleansed. 
Okay? And we understand this. The reality for us today is our confession of sin. Before we come to Bible class, before we do any work of services unto the Lord, we want to make sure that we're cleansed. And it's, it's, you know, so we stop, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Even if we don't think we have any sin, it's still an opportunity to quiet your heart for, for Bible class, for teaching, to examine yourself, to, uh, to request that the Father cleanse you of, of whatever sin you've forgotten about or not aware of. Remember, there's the known and the unknown sins, and, and probably for every sin I know about, there's five sins I don't know about, you know, just on the, the basis of our human ignorance, on the basis of our frailties. And so cleansing is not optional, it is mandatory. So they shall wash their hands and their feet so they will not die. And there shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants through their generations. Okay? Aaron and his descendants. It's not for, you know, just a, a random uh, believer from a different tribe, right? Not for somebody, you know, Radley from the tribe of Reuben. He doesn't have to go wash at that, at that uh, laver because he's not going into the tabernacle. Okay? And, and this whole concept of separation and personal duties and personal holiness, Jews were set apart as opposed to Gentiles, but then even with, within Jewish people themselves, Levites are set apart from non-Levite Jews, right? And then even within Levites, the house of Aaron was set apart from all the other Levites because it was only the sons of Aaron that are the priests, okay? And so this, this idea of increasing separation, each step of the way comes with it, additional duties, additional responsibilities, expectations, requirements, things of that nature. And this is what gets abused in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is what happens in the intertestamental period when the Pharisees come along and they start to invent their own cleansing rituals, their own water washings, their own, they start to separate themselves beyond the priests, beyond the scribes and the priests and the Sanhedrin and that, they would kind of invent their own uh, standards of, of washings and this and that and become totally judgmental legalists against everybody else for not playing their game. How sad is that? Start accusing Jesus of things and saying, why don't your disciples you know, wash before this and that. Like, you know, <laughs> they're not Levites, they're not priests, they're not going into the temple. They're, they're uh, you know, it, it's, you made this stuff up. You've created your own religion that's not from the law. Anyway, we'll, we'll get into that when we get to the New Testament. I just felt like highlighting it here. Okay, we get to verses 22 through 38. We have instructions and specific recipes that are given for the holy anointing oil and the holy incense, okay? So oil was used normally anyway, just in daily hygiene, daily uh, items. Likewise, incense would be used normally anyway. This is different. So moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take also for yourself the finest of spices of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels. This isn't cheap, Okay. And a fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250. And a fragrant cane, 250. And cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And you can't be cheating your shekels. Okay? You got, they got to meet the, 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 uh, the, the weight standard of the, of the sanctuary. And of olive oil, a hin. That's another measurement. 
And you shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture. The work of a perfumer shall be a holy anointing oil. And they're going to have skilled craftsmen that are going to be doing all this, that God's going to give the spirit of wisdom to be the best perfumer ever in the history of perfumers. All right, But this recipe is God-given and it cannot be messed with. And it also can't be stolen or used in other contexts. Don't use this recipe at home. Okay, This is only for the temple, only for the tabernacle. And so with this mixture you shall anoint That means smear. The tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the table and all its utensils and the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense. Everything is going to get smeared with this oil. Everything. Down to the last sniffer, right? The candle sniffers of things. And the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and the laver and its stand, you shall also consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be most holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister as priests to me. So they're going to get smeared. You shall speak to the sons of Israel saying, this shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. This recipe is not going to change. From generation to generation to generation, this is what they are going to produce. It shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. We don't want to see this showing up at HEB in the shampoo aisle. Okay, This isn't going to get marketed as being, oh, genuine tabernacle uh, oil. No, this is unique. This is set apart strictly for the worship of the Lord. It shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy, it shall be holy to you. Whoever shall mix any like it or whoever puts any of it on a layman shall be cut off from his people. This phrase cut off, um, don't have notes on it tonight, but pay attention to that. You're going to see this repeatedly in the book of Leviticus. Okay, You're going to see this cut off. And there's a big debate about, well, what does that mean and who does the cutting and when does it happen? And Well, we're going to, just, we're going to go through all of that. I think I understand it better today than I've ever understood it. So I'm excited. I'm building up the enthusiasm for Leviticus ahead of time. Okay, We're going to get there. And it's still going to be my top 66 favorite books when we're done. It might even climb to my top 65 books when we're done. We'll see. All right, so here's the uh, not just the oil, but also the incense. Different recipe. Take for yourself spices, statki, annika, these are hard to pronounce, galbanum, spices with pure frankincense, there shall be an equal part of each. With it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you, it shall be most holy to you. So if any of the ingredients are missing or anything is off, that's going to be a problem. It has to be to these proportions. It has to be with these ingredients. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. So don't be giving this to your to your wife for Valentine's Day. This is not that kind of perfume, not that kind of recipe. This is only for the incense that is offered before the Lord. And if you monkey with this, you're in trouble. Okay? This is what Nadab and Abihu are going to do. And they're going to pay the price for it. And whoever shall make any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. So the whole idea, 
I mean, why does it cross people's minds that they can take something in their religious life and make money off of it in their earthly life? Okay? And yet it happens all the time, still to this day. It happens. All, you know, religion can be big, big bucks. You can, you can, you can, uh, you can make some money in a, in a phony approach to religion. All right. Chapter 31 then. Short chapter, and we're doing well, actually. We're ahead of, ahead of schedule. But we've got to talk about these craftsmen. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to get a bunch of instructions, okay? And if, <laughs> let's just say Exodus 20 through 30 was given, and it was left to me to make it happen. I'll tell you right now, it wouldn't have happened, Okay? I couldn't have followed any of these instructions. My head would have been spinning. I'd have been lost. I would have been struck down by the Lord in, in the, for the first 10 minutes of making an attempt. But God had special servants already designated that knew how to use tools, that knew how to do stuff, how to build stuff, how to, uh, how to sew garments, how to perfume, perfume, and, and all of this. And we have two of them here by name. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Okay, So we know his name, we know his dad's name, his, we have uh, family, clan, and tribe that are spelled out here. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. So we know his house, we know his clan, we know his tribe. And this Bezalel guy, he's awesome. Because God makes him awesome. God lifts him up. And whatever talent he had, whatever experience he had, whatever his resume was like before this chapter, it gets multiplied as God pours the Spirit into him. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. You know, I'm, I'm, I think about that scene in, in The Matrix when they jacked the thing into the back of their skull and downloaded jujitsu, and all of a sudden Keanu Reeves knew how to do jujitsu and whatever, right? You know what I'm talking about? But this is better than that. The Holy Spirit comes inside of Bezalel, and all of a sudden he is, you know, he's Mr. Craftsman, uh, you know, the greatest craftsman ever. All kinds of craftsmanship. To make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze. Some people specialize, right? And, and maybe you're good at gold, but you're not any good at silver. Or you're not any good at bronze. or You have your specialty. He could do it all. He was the best at every craft by the grace of God. The cutting of stones for settings and carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Again, not specializing. He did everything. And behold, I myself have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Asamach, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill, that they may make all that I have commanded you. So we have a lead man, we have a prime assistant, and then we have additional unnamed workers. And they already had skillful hearts, and he's just magnifying that with, uh, with these spiritual gifts. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat upon it, the furniture of the tent. I mean, everything is just perfect because it's constructed by the greatest craftsmanship this planet has ever seen. Okay? At least until Solomon's day, and then it'll be surpassed with the glory of Solomon's temple. Better craftsmen there. Some points, though. I want to really stress this. 
temporary spiritual gifts will be given to particular craftsmen for the construction of the tabernacle. Okay? So when we think of spiritual gifts, today we think about pastor, teacher, evangelist, exhorter, giving. We think about the church age spiritual gifts. But these are Old Testament spiritual gifts. Not given universally like we have. In the church age, everybody gets a gift. In the Old Testament, only certain people were called as prophets or called as judges or called as tabernacle builders. Okay? The spiritual gift of tabernacle builder was a temporary gift. Do you know how long it was given? For one year, right here. Okay? It was given at Mount Sinai and it was never given ever again. Okay? Or at least until Solomon's temple. Okay? But this is what I'm saying. I'm calling it a temporary spiritual gift. And it's useful for us to think in these terms because there are um, the non-cessationist types among us uh, in the church age who don't like the idea of a temporary spiritual gift. And they believe that anything God does has to continue forever. And, and that's why they claim that we still have apostles and prophets today. They claim that we still have miracles and healing and all the, the tongues and all the stuff. They, they, they would d- dispute that there's such a thing in the Bible as a temporary spiritual gift. And so I find it useful to bring them here. To say, well, who has the gift of tabernacle building today? If you're going to insist that every gift ever given, or no one is ark, right? Ark building. Uh, if, 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 if gifts have to always be given once they're ever given, then somebody today has to be the tabernacle builder. Who is that? Okay? And, and it's clearly not the case. And so you might find this useful as well. The idea of particular craftsmen for the construction of the tabernacle. And it wouldn't make any sense, right? God's not a moron. Anybody here think God is stupid? You know, once the tabernacle is built, why would anybody need to have the spiritual gift of tabernacle building? No one would ever need it again. It's built. It's done. Bezalel did his job. Aholiab did his job. This whole crew did their job. We're going to see it's finished by the time we get to Exodus chapter 40. Okay? And so with the tabernacle built, they're done. It's like, I can tell you why we don't have apostles and prophets anymore in the church age. It's because those gifts were laying the foundation. When the foundation is laid, you don't keep laying more foundation. You build on the foundation, right? How dumb would it be 2,000 years later to still be laying more and more foundation? You've got you to gotta stop laying foundation sometime or you never have a building on top of it. And so once you realize that apostles and prophets and miracles and tongues and healing and all those, those sign gifts in the early church, they were for the laying of the foundation. And that was done in the first century as the New Testament was written. But with the, when the apostle John died, that was it. The last living apostle went to heaven. No more apostles. And so in these first 11 verses, we have these... Uh, amazing craftsmen and their spiritual gift, including woven garments. They were uh, equipped to be the best seamstresses ever, the best tailors ever, the anointing oil, the best perfumers. I mean, everything was just perfect as God filled them. So, I mean, just think about it. Maybe it's not as spectacular as Samson, you know, the spirit came upon him and he got super strong and he went out and killed a bunch of people. But still, it's that glorious as the Holy Spirit comes upon Bezalel and Aholiab and all these guys, and they start building stuff. They start manufacturing stuff. Absolutely must have been an amazing thing to behold. I don't know if we'll get a video replay of this when we get to heaven and just watch it in, in work. You know, just 
How amazing would that be? All right, verses 12 through 17. The Sabbath is emphasized once again as the conclusion of the entire revelation given to Moses. And so again, you know, and, and they're about to embark upon a huge work assignment, building this tabernacle. It's going to take them about a year. And uh, they might feel, you know, the pressure of deadlines or whatever. You know, don't blow it in this year. Observe that Sabbath. Every, you know, the seventh day is the Sabbath. You're not going to be working on the Sabbath. And so this is uh, given here in verses 12 through 17. And how easy is it to compromise and to say, yeah, well, I know we're supposed to rest, but God wants me to get this tabernacle built, okay? I know we're supposed to rest, but I'm serving the Lord doing this. No, you're disobeying the Lord doing this. Obey His commands, do what you're supposed to do when He tells you to do it. Finally, verse 18, when he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. God himself did the writing with his own finger on these stone tablets. And then we think this is awesome. Moses is ready now to take these tablets in hand and walk down the mountain and they're going to live happily ever after. Okay? No. We're going to get to chapter 32 Sunday morning and we're going to see when Moses gets down the mountain He's not going to like what he's seeing down there, okay? And during the 40 days that he was up on that mountain, Israel goes to idolatry, and Aaron's leading the pack. How sad is that? So the Lord ends his 40-day session with Moses by presenting Moses with the two stone tablets of the testimony. God's own handwriting. And I can't imagine, how beautiful must that have been? By the finger of God, his own handwriting, his own script, the idea of seeing that. All right, well, that gets us through chapter 31. So um, let me show you where we're going to be starting next week. This is the week-by-week calendar here that takes us through the whole year. All right, so we just finished day 43, Exodus 29 through 31. So the next seven classes, Exodus 32 through 34, so that's the golden calf and the aftermath there. 35 through 36, 37 through 39, 39 through 40. So those are the four classes we're doing on Sunday. We will finish Exodus on Sunday. And we'll also get some uh, reading out of Numbers chapter 9. Then we got Numbers chapter 7, Numbers 8 and 9. Then Leviticus. Stay tuned for Leviticus. Next Wednesday night, next Thursday night. All right, so there we have it. Rapture pending, of course. Lord willing and rapture pending. If the trumpet sounds, we're out of here. And, uh, the, uh, uh, and, and, and with, to no one's regret either, by the way. I will be very happy to, uh, to not finish 365 classes. But uh, still, it'd be kind of fun to finish 365 and then get raptured on January 1st. <laughs> and... Uh, We'll see if the Lord wants to do that too. Okay. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the blessing we have. And Father, we know there's, our heads are spinning. There's so many details and things to keep track of. But Father, um, let us have the takeaway from these chapters, recognizing that you are very precise. You say what you mean and you have expectations of obedience. And uh, when you give uh, uh, recipes and when you give proportions and when you give specific amounts and when you call for these things to be done, we, we, we learn very quickly, Father, that you are intimately involved in our worship. 
And, uh, and you make it clear on, on what basis we may approach you. And uh, if we try to violate that or just show up in, in our own understanding with our own wisdom, Father, it is, uh, it is, it is, uh, it's bad news. Woe be unto us to approach you in an inappropriate manner. So Father, we thank you for these, these lessons that we're learning and uh, continue to impress them upon us as we continue to work our way through. We thank you for each of these brothers and sisters here tonight. Continue to bless our daily readings and uh, continue to bless our, our time in your truth. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.